There is something in the nature of humankind that makes it want to make the wild world do things that the wild world doesn't want to do. And there's something about the wild world that wants to intrude upon the affairs of humankind. So today we're going to explore those odd junctures where animals and sometimes plants show up in places where they're not wanted, do things that are not approved of, and then face possible retribution from the powers that be. But that doesn't always work so well either because it just turns out like the entire Australian army could not subdue a flock of emus and other stuff like that. It's Mary Roach, by the way, the wonderful author Mary Roach. will be here to tell us all about that and someone to talk about bear whispering. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Your world was so different from mine, don't you say? And we couldn't be close though we tried. We both reached for heaven, but ours weren't the same. That's what happens when two worlds collide. That is the great and late, unfortunately, John Prine. Singing with Trisha Yearwood. Because this is an episode about what happens when two worlds collide. In this case, the world of humans and the world of animals and plants who are not humans. And we are back with Mary Roach, who's been with us many times before for her other books. She currently has a book out now called Buzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. A little bit later in the show, we're going to talk to Ben Killam, a researcher, independent wildlife biologist, and a bear whisperer. He is the bear whisperer, perhaps. I mean, who's going to dispute that claim anyway? Uh, but right now, it's time for Mary Roach. It's very happy. I'm very happy to have you back on the show, Mary Roach. I am so happy to be back. Thank you so much, Colin. All right. I think we've established that we're both happy. Uh, <laughs> and so, <laughs> so actually, I think we should sort of begin with the high concept of the book. You know, when nature breaks the law, that may seem counterintuitive to people. Uh, laws are made basically to govern the behavior of people. It's not like a bear could be excommunicated by the church or a slug could get uh, warnings about something that it's doing or a pig could be tried for murder uh, or rats could be served with writs. It's not like that, except that all of those things happened, right? 
those things all happened. Uh, we're, we're talking about 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. So going back in time. But yeah, all of those things are in, uh, there's this kind of extraordinary and bizarre book from 1906 called The Capital Punishment and Criminal, Criminal Prosecution and Capital Punishment of Animals. And uh, that book was part of what got me interested in the topic because I remember thinking the legal system is probably not the best way to resolve these kinds of conflicts. I mean, like you pointed out, Colin, these laws are written for humans. They're, they, I mean, you can't expect animals to follow laws. Uh, animals are following their instincts. They're just looking for food, looking for a place to build a nest, to have young, to migrate. So yeah, let's let's maybe science might be a better a better way to uh, resolve some of these issues. Right. And it's sort of interesting, though, when you think about the law, because I think there's a movement today to use the law towards wildlife in a more benign way. I mean, ranging from trying to grant legal status to animals who might be used in experiments so that they can, in fact, pursue their own interest in court. There's even a movement to grant legal status, more or less personhood status, to bodies of water uh, so that, once again, their interests can be pursued in court. So that's the way we think of it now when we're trying to be helpful and constructive. But what you found is that <laughs> this has been preceded by centuries of being essentially destructive and antipathetic towards the interests of anything that wasn't a human being. Yeah, that's right. And, and in granting legal status, uh, it, you know, sometimes people hear that and they think, so you're saying that bears will be able to vote or, mm. <laughs> you know, that, that people would, that, that these uh, animals or even the, the, the river you're uh, talking to probably the Ganges in India. It's just a, a, a way of conferring some some better protections. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. But in in general, uh, the legal system is. Uh, it, I mean, it does. Uh, there are efforts in that area, but I I focus more on the the uh, science of human wildlife conflict and what some of the folks who do research in that world are trying to do. Right. I, I just just point out in the interest of accuracy, uh, here in Connecticut in the town of Winstead, bears can vote. Um, and so can sheep. <laughs> uh, so can sheep. And it's very important to get them in separate lines, you know, I mean, because it's uh, obviously you can imagine what would happen. So l- let's give some examples of, I mean, I think one of the most important things, I made this point recently because I was writing about sharks. And, and so I cited uh, what's now become kind of a, a, a favorite uh, statistic for people uh, who want to defend sharks. Sharks get blamed for all this stuff. Sharks kill way fewer people than die in accidents related to selfie taking. So somebody like backing up a little closer to the edge of the, the cliff, uh, that ha- that happens more than sharks killing people. Uh, but we, we talk about animals like they're this huge threat to, to human life. Uh, and but maybe you can give el- the elephants in India as an example of how we do this wrong. Sure. Yeah. Well, in this country, uh, uh, you know, people get very, people get very uh, worked up about uh, bear fatalities, but in, in the United States, every year between zero and three people are killed by bears. And there's so many, many in, uh, close encounters between people and bears, but uh, the um, one of the very rare that happens, it's, hu- it's a huge media story. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, to, but to put things in perspective a little bit, uh, in this country, around a dozen to 15 people are killed by dogs uh, by, and by snakes. 
And uh, to put it in even more incredible perspective, in India, 500 people a year are killed in uh, uh, conflicts. It's not like the elephants are, you know, attacking them and like chasing them down to to intentionally kill them. It's just that they're very, very big, and people get upset when uh, farmers, in particular, when these uh, these animals come through in large social groups. And you can imagine, you know, eight elephants chopping through your garden is pretty much going to torpedo a whole year's work. So people get upset and they run out. It's often it's after dark. They've got firecrackers and torches and the animals panic. They, you know, the group gets split up and that makes the elephants freaked out. And then people are running around. Sometimes they're drunk. And as my mother liked to say, somebody's going to get hurt. A lot of just people stepped on or, or, you know, to get bumped into by an Indian elephant is occasionally a fail happening. So, right. So one of the th- interesting things that you explore is what is considered a pest. And it seems as though in the animal world, as opposed to pe- with people, we can, it's pretty easy to figure out who a pest is and who isn't. But, um, but what's a pest in the animal world? And as you say, size does matter. I think it's more likely, you're more likely to be classified as a, a pest if you're kind of rat and mouse size as opposed to elephant sized. Uh, intelligence yeah. is sometimes important to people. Uh, a smarter animal may have, or an ostensibly smarter animal may uh, attract different kinds of sympathies than a less smart animal. Uh, but but explore this. Actually, sure. maybe we can explore this. You and I have a, a similar experience, although they're years removed, which is that uh, you had a period of time where you're living in an apartment that had a lot of mice in it. Um, and, and I'm actually I'm every year invaded by mice, and I, it's happening right now. And I'm having to get the traps out. And I promise you, I don't use glue glue traps. I agree that they're disgusting. But even you know the most humane killing trap I can find, I feel pretty bad about the mouse. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't want to harm me. So talk a little bit about sort of what kind of insights you got about all this. Well, yeah, I think the word pest. Uh, I don't like that word pest uh, because it kind of puts the animal in the context of our existence you know, and, and nothing else. And it also gives us, uh, I guess it gives, gives us permission to just call someone to deal with it or to just, you know, get traps, get whatever, uh, and without really giving it a lot of thought. And there's, there are ways to uh, kind of prevent these conflicts rather than, you know, rather than Getting the traps. I mean, I, I don't know. You, you're, it sounds. Do you live in an old house that's got a, kind of lots of openings for the mice? Are you storing food in your? I'm gonna let's let's talk about your mice. <laughs> actually, I, actually, I live in a grain silo, so that's part of the problem. No, um, no, no. I live in an old house where there's holes the mice can get through and stuff like that. And then they come in and they they crawl around in the silverware drawer and they play the piano. And I mean, they just really they make themselves at home. Is what I'm saying, Mary. Yeah, I, 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 I lived in an apartment like that where we, one time in the pantry, I had a bunch of roommates. It was one of those, you know, early 20s kind of crappy apartment buildings in Haight-Ashbury. And uh, the, the, we had so many mice, one of them, and one of them came into the pantry and there was a loaf of bread. And I don't know if it was just one or a, a team, but they hollowed out kind of like <laughs> boring a tunnel. They hollowed out this loaf of bread from the back. So that we never knew what was happening. And then by the time they completely hollowed it out, by the time somebody noticed and grabbed the loaf of bread, it was just a shell. They were they were really smart. And and the thing is that the, the you know, rodents, rodents are 
they're pretty smart. Uh, and uh, uh, so are raccoons. I mean, these animals that have figured out how to benefit from our existence are often uh, pretty clever. And, you know, you gotta, gotta kind of hand it to them. But on the other hand, uh, having them inside your pantry or your walls or your attic is no fun. Um, in the book, I include at the back, these, uh, it's a ref sort of resources for homeowners and the Humane Society of the United States has a nice species by species guide to like, here's, here are some suggestions for you, the homeowner who's being plagued by, whether it's bats or uh, house sparrows or rats or whatever it is. So, um, you know, there's a little, you can plug those holes, Colin, with there's this stuff that's like steel wool, so they can't gnaw through it and you kind of cram it into the little nooks and crannies. You, you oh. probably, you could probably keep them out. All right. I could try, I'd be willing to try that because they don't feel good. And you know, know when right? yeah. it's not a good feeling when you can you come and find one. So that's uh, well. We should talk very specifically about your visit to New Zealand, where they have a lot of past. I have to say, I, I misspent quite a bit of my youth on the island of St. John in the Virgin Islands, where they brought in mongooses to kill the snakes, and the, sna the mongooses killed, killed all the snakes in about five minutes. You know, and, <laughs> and then they just started tipping over garbage cans for centuries. You know, and they, they also had sugar plantations which were overthrown in a slave revolt, and so they had. They they have these nocturnal donkeys. It's very Midsummer Night's Dream. You walk around and suddenly this donkey will thrust its head through the underbrush at you in the middle of the night. But, I mean, New Zealand's even crazier, right? It all kind of started with rabbits, <laughs> which they yeah. didn't have and they brought in. And then they yeah. have to get other stuff to kill the rabbits. But you should tell the story. Oh, yeah, sure. But, yeah, I was going to say the mongoose issue. Uh, same thing in Hawaii with to, to deal with rats in the sugarcane fields. Brought in mongooses. Is it mongoose? I think, I think it's gooses. I don't know. It's gooses, I Is think. It gooses? Yeah, yeah. I kind of like mongoose. Go ahead then. All right. All right. Mongoose. I'm just going to do it. They brought in mongoose <laughs> to uh, thinking, okay, they'll kill the rats. Well, there was a the issue was that the uh, rats were nocturnal and then the mongoose were dire and also never the twain shall meet. And the <laughs> mongoose so they sort of showed up and they're like, yeah, we hear there's these things called rats, but we're finding a lot of other stuff to eat that's pretty good. And so New Zealand, anyway, New Zealand has this big time because, yeah, they, they, uh, uh, so they, there used to be this thing called acclimatization societies, mm -hmm. and they were people, people who had uh, immigrated to New Zealand, and they kind of wanted the landscape to look and feel more like home. So they would bring in like deer so that they could, you know, hunt like they like to do. Well, they brought, and they, they brought in rabbits. And uh, not that many of them, but they did what rabbits do. And pretty soon the countryside, certain parts of New Zealand was completely overrun with these rabbits that were denuding the, the fields and um, making the farmers very unhappy. So people thought, okay, let's bring in some animals that would destroy the rabbits. So they imported, they shipped them in on boats, uh, stoats and weasels, which are sometimes the same thing. Stoats, ferrets, you know, those long, skinny, fierce little guys. So they brought them in, and so the stoats kind of looked around. There's like, yeah, there's some rabbits, but those eggs, those eggs there on the ground, because these birds are flightless. These mm -hmm. birds in New Zealand, a lot of them, they didn't evolve with any predators, so they didn't need to fly away quickly. So they uh, were pretty easy picking for the animals that were brought in to kill the rabbit. Fast forward, New Zealand has a ton of these stoats that uh, – have uh, along with the rats that have sort of abandoned ship and possums that were brought in from a fur trade, those three species have decimated these populations of uh, really pretty cool 
an extraordinarily uh, bizarre looking flightless birds, penguins, uh, flight, uh, not just not just the flightless birds, some of the, the winged flying birds as well. Not that the flightless ones don't have wings. Anyway, the, <laughs> so it's this it's this situation where there's this dwindling biodiversity because of these three main invasive species. And New Zealand has decided as a as a society to try to eliminate those three predators: stoats, possums, and rats. Uh, there's a program called Predator Free New Zealand 2050. And that's what they're trying to do. And uh, that's quite an undertaking. Anyway, just, yeah, you bring one animal in thinking this will be an easy solution. <laughs> and then, of course, it's, as Donald Rumsfeld put it, the unknown unknowns. Right. The things that nobody thought about. So the people in New Zealand have kind of raised the bar even a little bit higher for themselves because they're not going to do stoat glue traps. Not that there is such a thing or that it would work, but they, they want to kill animals as humanely as you can under these circumstances. Yes. So just give us a little... I, first of all, I just want to interject and say the fun of a Mary Roach book or a lot of the fun of the Mary Roach book is something that we can't easily do in the compaction of a radio interview, which is all the people... Uh, I mean, the animals are funny, but the people are really funnier and the people she meets are funnier and the descriptions and how offices are decorated and stuff like that. And we're just not going to be able to get into that today. So you've got to read the book, basically. But yeah, talk a little... You, you, did, you talked to this guy, uh, I believe his name is Warburton, who's sort of the you know, the, one of the driving forces yeah. behind finding a halfway decent way to kill something. Yeah, uh, Bruce Warburton was, is his name, and um, he's with Landcare Research in New Zealand. And, he, and he's his job, or part of his job, is looking at developing more humane traps and more humane poisons. And that's a just a downer of a job. <laughs> I mean, it's noble in that, okay, in the reality that we've created in New Zealand, uh, we are going to do this. They've decided we are going to do this. We are going to uh, attempt to exterminate these three species uh, in our homes. So let's do it as humanely as possible. So it's a noble effort, uh, but not a uh, not an easy job. I spent some time with him. Uh, you know, the, tra- the, the the trap tests are you know looking at how long you know with a stopwatch, how long to complete loss of awareness so you're not not lot till time till death but time to oblivion you don't know what's going on at all you the animal in the trap uh so that's a that's a heck of a job to be doing and uh the poisons as well and it was an interesting visit because i was spending you know initially i got there and i was out on the otago peninsula which is beautiful and i there's this place where you can see these uh yellow-eyed penguins which are this is crazy looking species with the kind of flash gordon yellow streaks coming back from their eyes and just a beautiful bird and they're uh dwindling uh i mean not not just from the stoats and rats and feral cats but because of some climate change issues and uh, some avian malaria and diphtheria so there's they're battling on a number of fronts but anyway you see these animals and you think yes let's do whatever we can to preserve these to keep them on this planet let's do that and then fast forward a couple of days later, and I'm at the Bruce Warburton's facility where they're trying out a, a, a more humane poison, which was turning out not to be that humane. Uh, and they're trying it out on possums. And just to see these little guys, you think, oh, dude, God, did it come to this? That we, I mean, that you, you, it's hard to feel uh, peaceful about the extermination of one species for the benefit of another. I understand why people 
want to do that in New Zealand, but it is a tough undertaking emotionally, really, to, to uh, you know, especially to be the one doing those those experiments. Oh, yeah. But, you know, well, first of all, there's a lot of knowledge that seems to be coming out of all that. In fact, before we go to a break, I, I, I want to ask you this question now because I'll forget it otherwise, um, which is one of the, the things I was wondering about. I mean, it, this is a typical Mary Roach book in the sense that you are out there meeting all these people and, and just getting just this tsunami of information just washing over you all the time. I don't know. How, how different are you after writing this book? I mean, going into this book, it's pretty clear you're a kind-hearted person. You don't believe in screwing over animals, uh, you know, unnecessarily. But, you know, you're not a vegetarian. Uh, I don't know. Like, how, how are you different as a result of all the encounters you had with animals and people trying to deal with animals and, for that matter, trees? Well, yeah, I've, I've always been a kind of a softy, and I'm the person who, when there's a spider in the house, my husband calls me to come, you know, put the glass over and slide the cardboard under it, take it outside. I, you know, I just can't, I can't step on a spider. Who am I to do that? I don't know. You know, and my husband's kind of like, okay, it's <laughs> <laughs> got a spider for you here. So uh, I, I, so I think I, I haven't fundamentally changed, but what's happened is uh, a couple of things. One, I'm a little more aware of different options mm -hmm. that are available for sort of preventing these problems, particularly with urban and even rural uh, homeowners. And uh, just, just that there are, there are other, there are things to try uh, before you call someone to deal with the problem to, you know, to make the problem go away. Uh, so, so I'm a little more, I, th I think I've become more annoying to the people I know <laughs> because if they say something like, Oh my God, we've got, got, you know, rats in the barn. So, you know, we're going to you know, do, going to get some, some rat poison or what, you know, I was like, well, <laughs> well, have you looked at, like I just did with you? Have you, yeah. have you looked at how they're getting in? It's like, you know, I just, I make, and I'm, I'm making people think about it and I'm, they may sort of tire of me as a friend, but I, I do feel like that it's a good thing. I'm trying to, just trying to get people to just shift their attitude a little bit, especially when it comes to these little guys, the ones that we call the pests, whether they're birds or rodents. Um, they're, they're beautiful, intelligent animals. A roof rat. I have, we have roof, roof rats in our neighborhood uh, certain part, times of the year. And my initial reaction was, I saw this thing and I was like, holy crap, it's a rat. We got to get a trap. It's a humane trap. You know, it's a quick kill. It'll be okay. And then I thought, this guy's not doing anything. Let's just watch the situation. I put out, you know, the wildlife camera to sort of figure out, you know, where is he, where does he live? And can we encourage him to live somewhere else? I mean, that's not a rat infestation. It's just one rat. And they're very cute. A roof rat <laughs> is is a very cute, it's just a squirrel with a bald tail. Honestly, they they look the same. We have this, the word rat should be retired because it makes, it freaks people out. It, I would agree. Um, well, that's a whole other conversation, actually. There's yes. Frank, Frank Skinner, who's a British commentator and a very funny guy and a big hero of mine. He, he says a lot of things are named wrong. He, first of all, he says that fly is a very na very lazy name for the animal we call a fly. He's like, you know, what do the wasps think? I mean, they're, they're probably thinking, well, we fly. How come we're not called flies? <laughs> um, but uh, but that's a whole that's, other- That is, yes, the whole other show. Yeah, I yeah. just saw that tweet by the Audubon Society of a, uh, they showed this yellow rumped warbler. Okay, the rump of the bird is perhaps it's hidden underneath the tail and I'm not <laughs> seeing it, but there's all this yellow all over the like the head and the breast. Mm. And I'm like, 
who named this bird? Right. And as we're, as we're going to discuss in the next segment, too, it turns out that albatrosses are all frequently known as goonie birds. And you have to be kind of grateful that Samuel Taylor Coleridge didn't know that because he would have had a much harder problem writing that poem if he had to call them goonie birds all the way through. Or it would have been a funnier poem. Uh, that's the other possibility. <laughs> it could have been hilarious. Uh, all right. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with Mary Roach after this. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. Right, we are back, and we are back with Mary Roach. Her new book is called Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. It's about encounters with the natural world, not just animals. We're not going to have time to talk about trees, but there's like a whole big thing about trees going on in this book. But, uh, Mary, I think we're going to talk a little bit in this segment about birds, um, and uh, in particular, two attempts to uh, eradicate or uh, otherwise curtail the uh, the works of birds. Although maybe we should just begin with <laughs> <laughs> with the whole thing with the crows. You, you begin this chapter with like these, is it called bird bombing or something? They're like these people are basically trying to get rid of yeah. crows by blowing them up, which is about as going to work about as well as getting rid of rabbits by bringing in stoats. Yeah, crow bombing. Well, this was this was a thing in the uh, early part of the last century. Uh, crows were blamed uh, for, you'd think it would just, crops that was part of it but there was this belief that the crows were eating so many duck eggs that the hunters wouldn't have enough ducks to shoot so um and, and what i loved is it what i loved but what i found kind of uh, ironic was that the the people setting up the crow bombings were often people with titles like texas conservation officer <laughs> because it was a, a long period of time conservation wasn't wasn't quite the way we think of it today but anyway so uh, what these what these folks would do, uh, they figure out where the crows were roosting, and they roost in huge numbers. You know, t- tens of thousands of them will be roosting <clears throat> in trees. So while the crows were off during the day doing their thing, feeding, eating, uh, whatever it is they were eating, eggs, crops, uh, these folks came in and would string up dynamite, essentially homemade. And there's studies on like. Uh, can versus ice cream carton versus you know prima versus dynamite like what and with the kill rate and the 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 dollar amount per bird it was like about 
fraction of a penny. So they just they'd string uh, dynamite through the trees, wait for the birds to come back, then boom. I mean, it was. Uh, I can't. I mean, I did. I didn't see any photographs of the actual moment of the explosion, but you'd see photographs in newspapers from back then of people, you know, kind of going through and piling up the dead birds, and that's, that's the which is just a just a ghastly thing. Because a lot of them were just mutilated. They weren't right. Entirely 150, you know, and, and, 100, yeah, 150 yeah. pounds of dynamite. This one guy used uh, in what amounts yeah, to be. Right. That, I don't have the. Yeah, I don't have the chapter in front of me. Yes, exactly. And the, and and the thing with those kinds of efforts to to kill large numbers of birds. I mean, birds. Uh, birds are migrating in you know, flocks in the, in the millions. So you know, you take out say say you got ten you know ten million blackbirds passing over. Uh, I use the example in the book of uh, sunflowers because you're trying to keep birds from eating bird seed, which is a tall challenge. And uh, they would be, you know, okay, if we took out a million of 20 million and people did the, did the calculations, n no appreciable change in the amount of damage to the crops and no real change in the population. It's just that there, there are too many of them. It doesn't work. There's various yeah. reasons. It just doesn't work. But the crow bombing, just the, some of the stories and the the glee with which this was reported in these small town yeah, newspapers. I wrote, I wrote in the margins, shock and caw. Uh, feel free to use that joke. <laughs> it's caw. Um, yeah, but, um, yeah. I, I also want to salute you in, the, in one of your footnotes in this chapter, too. Uh, this is a story that I actually covered in real time, uh, the efforts by a legislator named Mae Schmidl to ban, oh, yes. ban the throwing of rice at weddings here in Connecticut uh, because she thought that the birds would eat the rice and then apparently explode or something. And, and yeah. what, as my little gift to you, I, I at the time wrote a campaign song for her uh, that was to be sung to this uh, tune of Diamonds Are Our Girl's Best Friend. I'm just going to sing the end of it to you. Already. Oh, Peewees flee and finches flinch and we all feel the pinch in the end. But hawk Dove or kestrel that rice don't digest well. Schmidl is a bird's best friend. Uh, <laughs> she didn't use it. She didn't use it, but uh, there you go. So I want to talk about emus or emus. I've never been entirely sure how we say that particular name, but uh, I want to talk about uh, an, an effort. I want you to talk about an effort to eradicate them, however you pronounce them. Emus. I think it's, yeah, well, don't ask me. I say mongies. So, um, <laughs> emus. But yeah, the, uh, the emus, I love that story because in the, in the war between the Australian military and the emus, the emus pretty much won. Oh, no, no uh, question. So th yeah. This is um, Western Australia, 1932, was it? 31, I think, but I'm not 31. sure. 31. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It was kind of, there's a couple episodes of it, but what was going on is these wheat farmers and Western Australia, the state of Western Australia, were vexed by mobs of emus, large groups of emus coming in and eating the wheat. And they contacted, which was an interesting approach, they contacted the military, the Australian Defense Department, and said, could we borrow some machine guns? <laughs> the Australian Ministry of Defense is like, no, you can't. <laughs> However, we will send one of our best men down with a gunners and will do the job. So General Meredith comes down with as it, four machine gunners and they set up in this area where the emus have been enjoying the wheat. And this battle goes on for uh, like three or four days and the emus never quite get 
into close enough range for the machine guns to really do their thing. And it appears <laughs> that emus are, they almost appeared invincible. I mean, General Meredith, instead of being kind of embarrassed and perplexed, he was awed. He said, if I had an infantry that could withstand bullets like this, we could win any war. I mean, I'm paraphrasing him. I'm not if sure you, want the, exact, if you want the exact word, it's, if we had a military division with a bullet-carrying capacity, these birds, it, we could face any army in the world. It wasn't a very good Australian <laughs> accent. But, okay, um, thank you, yeah. Yeah, uh, so uh, the, the, they ended up, I ended up, the body count was something like 50 55. or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, 50 emus. And they, eventually they, they gave up. They withdrew in defeat. And there's this love, one of the, obviously the Australian media had a good time with this. And one of them described as the machine gunners and General Meredith were leaving along that main road, the emus sort of lined the side of the highway <laughs> as though to taunt them. So the emus basically won. I mean, more than basically. I mean, look, the army, the army backed down. I mean, you they know, uh, and yeah, I do love that scene in the book where they're like lining the road, saying, "Don't, <laughs> don't let the door hit you on the on the way out." Uh, yeah. So, um, so we don't have, we can't really walk, work th- through this whole thing because we, I have to save a little bit of time for our bear whisperer at the end. But, but uh, kind of a, a sister story to that uh, is the story, in fact, of the albatrosses in the midway and what actually came to be called the Second Battle of the Midway. Well, which was, in fact, uh, between humans and albatrosses. And this was no four-day affair, right? This went on for years and years and years? This went on for, this went on for years. Uh, Midway, Midway, before the Navy set up a base, was a, a seabird uh, nesting ground. Just, uh, you know, half a dozen species there with huge numbers of nests, raising their young, doing it year after year. So the military comes in. We're talking about... World War II, and they come in and they're like, this is halfway between Asia and the United States. This would be a good place for uh, refueling, for flights coming and going, so we're gonna build a base. Sort of, okay, there's a lot of these large white birds over here near the tarmac. Well, I'm sure they'll fly away when we start taking off and landing planes. Well, they don't. The albatross is a really unflappable bird. If you can use the word unflappable for birds, <laughs> which probably you can't. You just but they, they were, they're kind of like, huh, these big metal birds, we can deal with it. We're okay with it. And they stayed. And so the military, uh, they turned every technology they had at the time on these birds, bazookas, mortars, pistols, burning tires. Uh, they had, uh, they had a, I think, a sort of a, um, was it infrasound? Infra, they had, I think maybe an infrasound. They had... Um, <laughs> hand to hand combat that was the most brutal one just like sending guys out with a club and to just whack them over the head and the and because the albatross is an unflappable bird they would just kind of sit there and wait till the flubbers got to them and tens of thousands were killed and and um in the end it made no difference on the number of birds the birds uh that the population stayed pretty constant they tried changing the landscape. They thought, oh, if we knock this dune out, they won't have the necessary uplift to take off. Well, that wasn't true. In fact, it just gave more access to the birds. And when they tried taking them physically and flying them to neighboring islands. They tried moving them to, I mean, I mean, far away neighboring islands and just putting them on the next island over, sort of swapping out the eggs, just booting one bird off and putting the egg there. And the albatross sort of has this internal GPS. They're like, 
no, we're going back. They would find their way back. There was nothing that the Navy could do to stop albatrosses. From you know, and I think that's, that's it's kind of a theme in your book too, uh, Mary Roach, is that like, these animals just have these amazing capacities, whether, you know, you point out that a mouse at our size would be able to leap a 20-foot wall with no running start. I mean, it's just like these animals, they have these incredible physical attribu- attributes and incre- incredible abilities to adapt, sometimes even yep. to naked aggression. And it, it's, you do w- walk away with an even more feeling, a greater feeling of admiration for, uh, for wildlife. Um, that sounds very sterile. I, I should have said that better. But anyway, the book is really a lot of fun. No more freebies. You're going to have to read it from now on. Uh, the book is called Fuzz. <laughs> it's by Mary Roach, one of our favorite guests, author of Gulp and Stiff and lots of other uh, books like that, When Nature Breaks the Law. Mary Roach, thanks for coming back again. Oh, my pleasure, Colin. Thank we'll you so much. We'll talk to you again in a few years. Okay. You Okay, first of all, i got to say some thank yous. Um, Kat Pastor is the technical producer of this show. She's keeping everything humming and everything moving, uh, which is essential. Betsy Kaplan is the producer of this episode. Uh, so we're going to move from everything that we've just talked about, but move not very f- far from that. Uh, we're going to move to bears. Uh, let me just quickly say that a few years ago, uh, on Halloween night, I was pulling up into my driveway, and there were two kids in bear costumes in my yard. And then I realized they were young bears. Um, and they were like up getting up on the deck and everything. And I was thinking, <laughs> there's bears running around in the neighborhood along with children holding sacks of sugar. <laughs> this cannot be a good thing. But in fact, you know, even though they were running all over the neighborhood and there were kids making high-pitched noises and holding bags of food, nothing terribly bad did happen. And maybe that's a good point uh, or a good way to talk to begin our conversation with Ben Killam, researcher, independent wildlife biologist and wildlife rehabilitator. He is the author of two books, Among the Bears, Raising Orphan Cubs in the Wild uh, and In the Company of Bears. He's the founder of the Killam Bears Center in New Hampshire. We'll tell you uh, all about that. Uh, but um, first of all, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So let's begin with the obvious, and it kind of builds on some of the stuff that Mary Roach was saying, too. Uh, Bears aren't the problem. People are the problem. People do stuff to get the bears into situations they don't belong in. Tell us more about that. Yeah, they talk about nuisance bears, but it's nuisance people. Uh, You know, it's all about having food attractants, uh, unsecured garbage, uh, livestock without electric fences. Uh, bears have really good noses. Uh, they have to get through the winter. They got to store 30% of their body weight and fat. If they're the average bear, a female giving birth to cubs needs to store 50% of her body weight and fat. So food becomes really valuable. It's like a money to a person. They, it's their bank. It's whatever food they can get helps them get through the winter and survive. 
Right. And so and I, my sense of bears has always been also they're they're kind of doing risk benefit analysis all the time. They're going, okay, that food's over there. That's how far I would have to go to get that food. That's how much food it seems like there is there. Is it worth it? Is something bad going to happen to me? Is that am I am I even close to the truth about this? I feel like bears are kind of calculating things like that. Well, they are they are calculating, but it's the quality of food, the quantity of food and the amount of risk that it takes to get the food. So in normal if you have a good natural food year, the bears will stay in the forest. If there's a poor natural food year, they take the risk to get the food wherever they can find it. And that's when they start coming into villages and get, getting those food attractants, the easy bird feeders and the garbage and such. So this also means that sometimes uh, by accident, sometimes maybe not quite so by accident, humans and bears are coming into closer and closer contact all the time. And we don't necessarily understand what it is we're supposed to do or what's going to happen in that situation. Uh, talk about the 25-foot tr- critical distance zone. That's a good place to start, I think. Well, that, that's if you, you know, if you're out hiking on a trail and you come across the sow with young cubs, uh, if you're in that distance, she's likely to false charge you. Mm. send her cubs up a tree and a false charge is a quick rush towards you and she'll expel air and your bodily fluids may run a little bit but (laughs) she sees she sees you as the aggressor she thinks you're going to attack her so you've got to let her know that you're not going to hurt her and you do that by keeping your eyes on her talking softly to her let her know that like you would to a child or a dog uh, that you're not a problem. And in three to five minutes, she can understand you. Mm. And uh, it'll de-escalate. She'll either uh, walk away or or you can turn and walk away safely. So, yeah, we've been told the, the wrong things, which is to make ourselves big and noisy uh, and, and like we're not a good at Well, the problem idea. with that is that's fine if it's, if it's a single bear, but if it's a sow with cubs, you make yourself big and noisy, you're making yourself more of a threat. You always want to de-escalate the situation. You know, the, the, the nice thing about bears is they do understand us. Mm-hmm. Now, they may not understand English or be able to speak it, but they know uh, uh, our intentions, they know our behavior, and they can tell by the intonation of our voice what we mean. And unfortunately, we think they're from Mars. We don't understand a false charge. We don't understand when they chop their teeth. We don't understand when they're nervous. And so I've spent an awful lot of time trying to educate the public on how to understand the bears. Uh, they have no interest in us whatsoever except for our food. Now, unfortunately, bears are social animals, and they naturally share food. So when you give food to them intentionally or unintentionally, um, they think highly of you for it, and they become friendly quickly. So generally, a nuisance bear is a a bear that has lost its fear of people. Mm. So it's, it's, it's like having your brother-in-law over for dinner and, and he stays for a month. <laughs> um, very quickly, because I want to get to some of the other stuff that you're doing, but I mean, there's often a third party in these encounters. And here in Connecticut, that's been true out in the woods. And that's people have their dogs with them. And so, you know, you can coach me about what to do uh, when a bear is around. Dogs tend to make up their own minds about that. So what kind of X factor do they add to these encounters? 
Well, dogs should be on leashes when bears are around. Mm. Uh, you know, the probably dogs don't know enough. Uh, they'll go running, especially an aggressive dog will go run and chase a bear. And if it's a bit sow with cubs, she's going to turn around and chase the dog and dogs going to come back to you. And next thing you know, <laughs> you've got a bear between your legs. Right. <laughs> and that's not a good situation. But you're responsible for anything that your dog does while you're in the woods. Mm. Uh, it, they don't have any rights to be out there chasing wildlife, chasing deer, harassing bears or anything. So a, a dog on a leash is a dog that's uh, going to stay out of trouble. Yeah, actually, I have to say I was on a trail with my dog who, who was on a leash and a pretty big bear stepped on into the trail. And my dog, who is in no danger of getting into MIT, he figured out right away that this is not something you bark at. You know, I mean, he took a look at the bear and thought, no. Oh. I think I'll be quiet this one time. So maybe dogs actually do get that this is sort of a different kind of animal. Uh, ideally, they do. All right. I want to talk a little bit about what you've been doing here and specifically about the work you do at the Killam Bear Center. This is uh, a group that takes in orphaned bear cubs and releases them into the wild at 18 months old. Uh, you're trying to save cubs. Often they've been orphaned, I would assume, because of hunting or, or, or for whatever reason. So what does it take to do that? What does it take to kind of – uh, to, to rehabilitate, if that's the right word, a bear cub? Well, it, it takes a lot of effort. And, you know, it comes, the cubs come to us from all kinds of circumstances. Uh, we've had uh, rabbit hunters, dogs that go into dens uh, and bite a cub. And then, of course, the mom doesn't take it very lightly and the rabbit hunter shoots the mom. And so you get these very tiny cubs that, that need to be bottle fed, um, and kept with us for a long, long time. The next group are uh, natural abandonments. Uh, first time moms often run out of milk because they're low in, in status. And when they do, they come back, they come into asterisk and run off with a male, leaving their cubs behind. Those cubs will often show up at somebody's house. We can tell them because they're always grateful to be rescued. They'll crawl up my chest and give me a kiss on the lips and say, hey, you're the one now. <laughs> and the next group is the saddest, and that's the, the uh, moms that are shot at chicken coops. And the cubs are terrified. They've seen, you know, the worst of man uh, pulling a gun and shooting their mother in front of them. And these cubs are scared, and it takes them a week, maybe two weeks, to recognize that the caregiver in this case, my nephew, Ethan, uh, is okay. Mm -hmm. He's here to take care of us. And they'll make friends. Uh, bears, from my research, I've found that they're the only non-human animal that are able to make friends and cooperate with strangers. So these cubs are all put together. They're from different litters. Uh, and within a week or two, they're buddies. Mm -hmm. And sometimes less time than that. And we have a large forested 11-acre enclosure that uh, they get turned out into and they run around as a group of, of buddies sleeping in trees and sleeping with each other. And in fact, this year, uh, it, it, it was the first time it's happened, but we had three wild uh, yearlings break in <laughs> and, and then play and wrestle with the cubs that were inside. <laughs> And they were from a, a mother that was one of our cubs at one time, but uh, she'd been injured in a hunting situation and the cubs weren't very big. 
so the yearlings were actually smaller than the cubs of the year that we had in the enclosure. So s- sooner or later, you want to release them back to the wild. I mean, is it a problem that they've gotten very used to human beings, or at least to Ethan? Or uh, I mean, well, uh, yeah, we use a basically single caregiver. We obviously there's more of us when it's bottle feeding time, but. You know, the, the analogy I like to use is, you know, you've got children or, or somebody you know has children and you go out in public, they don't go hug strangers and bears don't either. Mm-hmm. You know, I sent a stranger into that enclosure without one of us. You wouldn't see any bears. They wouldn't trust you. And that that's what happens when they go out in the world. What What makes... A bear that's in a residential area that has cubs and the cubs are raised by their natural mother in the residential area will have be residential bears. These cubs won't have any access to the residential areas because those residential females are relatively territorial and won't let them in. So very few of our bears that are released get into any kind of conflict situation. We should quickly say, though, though this is like a one-hour conversation, that one of your cubs uh, from a long time ago uh, named Squirty uh, is a bear that you then went on to kind of work with and observe uh, throughout the bear's life. The bear is, what, 26 years old now? Should be 26 in January. That's got to be pretty amazing. And so, I mean, I don't know if if Squirty's – where is Squirty? Squirty's out in the wild somewhere now? She's in the wild, but she's on a piece of property that my wife and I own. That's about 400 acres Hmm. in that vicinity. And uh, I believe she's done having cubs. She hasn't had cubs in two years and hasn't had any behavior like she wanted to mate or do anything like that. She stopped being as territorial as she was. She's still the boss. Nobody can mess with her, but... uh, uh, she has uh, the place that she likes to be, and it's secluded and got good cover, and she's doing well. So if Squirty sees you, I mean, are you now just sort of a person, or does Squirty remember you? No, no, she still comes up to me. She's mm. she's fine with me. As soon as she smells me, she comes out of the woods and mm. greets me. That's amazing. I mean, we encourage our uh, listeners not to try that at home. Don't try to become friends with bears. Uh, give them their space. But because uh, you're not Ben Killam. He's Ben Killam, researcher, independent wildlife biologist, and wildlife rehabilitator, author of two books, Among the Bears, Raising Orphan Cubs in the Wild uh, and in the Company of Bears, founder of the Killam Bear Center in New Hampshire. Thanks for being with us today, sir. Yeah, you can go to the Killam Bear Center website, which is killambearcenter.org. Uh, there's great videos and uh, my nephew is also putting uh, videos and pictures on Instagram. We're going to link to it uh, at our page at cdpublic.org, uh, probably slash Colin, something like that. Uh, we'll have a link to all of the Killam stuff, so you'll be able to find it. Uh, it's spelled K-I-L-H-A-M, in case you were wondering. Thanks for listening today, and we will be back with more this week. Remember that's a bear there in the bunch with you, and it just don't Stop instead. I just remember that's a bear there.